0: Hello and welcome to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. On this episode, we're joined by Walter Robinson, editor-at-large at the Boston Globe, who spoke about his experience
1: leading the Globe Spotlight team's investigation of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church. The story behind the investigation has since been adapted into the Oscar-nominated movie Spotlight, in which
0: Robinson is played by Michael Keaton. In this talk, Robinson discusses the Hollywood adaptation of the
1: Spotlight team's reporting, as well as the future of investigative journalism in the face of budget cuts across the media industry. Moderating the event is Tom Patterson, Interim Director of the Shorenstein Center. Uh, We're just delighted uh, to have Walter Robinson uh, here. Robbie's been at the Globe for a long time. He's currently the editor-at-large for the Globe, um, and he led the Spotlight team uh, that produced that wonderful investigative report uh, that turned, was turned into a movie uh, and is now up for an Oscar. Uh, he's had so many beats at the Globe, I don't know quite where to start in listing those, but uh, he's been in 48 states. I should probably ask Robbie which two he missed in that... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> North Dakota and Montana. <laughs> That's my country, so you better be careful. So, uh, anyway, Robbie, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, th- thank you all for uh, turning out in the aftermath of the uh, blizzard of 2016. Anyway, I want to thank the uh, Shorenstein Center having me over and especially Tom and uh, Tim Bailey who put this together for giving me a uh, I'm kidding here a rare opportunity to talk about this film <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I, I uh, for decades I've made my living uh, in the shadows as a print reporter. I don't court publicity and I don't normally welcome it. Uh, In fact, I believe my ability to gather information and get people to talk is greater because most people have never heard of me, uh, because I can relate to people as a person and not as a personality. And that's all changed. Uh, It's been months since I wrote anything more consequential than an email. Uh, I spend most all of my time answering questions rather than asking them. So I have to say, uh, this is all a little disquieting, uh, uh, for we used to say in the newspaper business, uh, we used to call ourselves uh, ink-stained wretches, uh, where you think that the printed word uh, is all-powerful. And then all of a sudden, somebody makes a film, and you realize the power of a film, particularly a good film, to awaken people. Uh, and provoke the public consciousness about important issues uh, related in this case to child abuse and uh, and to the importance of investigative journalism and to do so in a way that the printed word just can never hope to. So uh, this film is uh, is a good thing uh, I think for that and uh, you know I've spoken about this topic uh, The Globe's coverage of this issue twice before here and it was uh, ten or eleven or twelve years ago, and uh, once at this lunch, and, uh, and both times I talked about the actual reporting uh, that we did back in two thousand and one, two thousand and two, and I'd be happy to to uh, talk about that. Although I suspect you may have other questions as well um, about the film, how it came about, uh, whether the filmmaker got it right. Or enough of it right to capture the essence of what we did, Um, how it's possible for the film to win such high marks from critics and moviegoers without car chases, explosions, or sex, Uh, what it says about the state of investigative reporting and whether it might even inspire young people to consider a career in journalism much the way all the president's men did uh, for young people of my generation in the the early 1970s. Um, one small item of interest, it is a small miracle that this film was ever made, and in fact the idea would never have caught the attention of Hollywood had it not been for Harvard's commitment to journalistic excellence. If you'd like to mo- know more about that, please ask. And I'll tell you that story. Um, I'd like to get to the matter at hand, when we picked the subject for today, it was this, how Hollywood came to celebrate what newsrooms believe is no longer worth the cost. Uh, Let me talk about this briefly because I think uh, what we're really going to talk about is what you want to talk about. Um, I'd say, uh, I think sometimes, at least at the moment, people who made this film seem to be more interested in the future of investigative reporting than the editors of most newspapers. Uh, for example, Participant Media, the socially conscious production company that financed the film, is funding a $100,000 investigative reporting fellowship uh, that they hope will attract 200 or more applications by the end of February, if you're interested in uh, there's a website, you could probably find it quicker than I could tell you. Um, Brian McGrory, the Globe editor, is matching that by putting up a reporter and a supervising editor at the Globe uh, to work with the winner of the fellowship and uh, some foundations are considering getting involved as well. And This is to try to pick a subject that is, as our project was, a local investigative topic which just happens to have perhaps national and uh, maybe even uh, international implications. So uh, so that's a good thing. Uh, yet at most newspapers the prevailing view among editors is investigative reporting is a luxury we can no longer afford. And of course As Joseph Pulitzer once said, every reporter a hope, every editor a disappointment. Uh, The editors are wrong about this. Uh, The fact is investigative reporting is a necessity that we cannot afford to do without. I think one of the fundamental mistakes that have been made by newspapers in the last decade as the revenue stream has evaporated is where they've cut. If you do readership surveys, and there have been lots done, The Globe does them, Pew has done some in the last two years, and you ask people who consume the news, who care about the news, what it is they care about most, investigative reporting is almost always at the top of the list. Uh, One asterisk, when you ask people who view local TV news what they find most important, the weather always comes up as number one, but investigative reporting is right behind it, even for viewers of local TV news. So at the moment, perhaps, this film can provoke a discussion about the importance of, of this kind of reporting. Uh, those who made the film uh, hope the film will win the Academy Award for Best Picture. Uh, the director, Tom McCarthy, is surely in that camp. Uh, everybody involved with the film hopes that, of course, it refocuses public attention on the plight of thousands upon thousands of children who were abused by priests. And by the way, many more are have been coming forward now since the film opened uh, in, um, in early November. Um, Tom McCarthy, who is nothing if not passionate about the films he makes, also hopes Spotlight will provoke a conversation about the future of investigative reporting and the need for it, uh, if it has a future at all. Uh, I'm a little pessimistic about that myself, but I know you can all cheer me up by telling me how we can make it work again. why don't I just uh, stop there and uh, turn the floor over to you all?
0: I'm a Kennedy School student, and I wanted to know about the story that you mentioned, the Harvard story.
1: I thought somebody would ask about that. <laughs> so, um, Everything I know about the film business I've learned in the last couple of years, uh, it's, I'm happy to report it's a lot more chaotic than the newspaper business. <laughs> It's amazing that anything gets made. Uh, this is a story. This is a film that never should have gotten made. When you look at all the hurdles that Hollywood usually puts in the in the path of of uh, stories like this, so uh, what what happened is in in two thousand and three. You know, when 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 the stories ran, there was an enormous amount of attention to the stories and and and. Uh, and I think appropriately, not much at all to how we did the stories. Um, and uh, in early two thousand and three, Melissa Ludke, who was then the editor of Neiman Reports, called me up and asked me to write something for Neiman Reports about how we did the story. And I kind of said, "Really?" And she said, "Yeah, I think our readers would be interested in it." So. Uh, I I confess, you can actually find this online, Uh, I wrote a couple of thousand words. I think I did it in an afternoon because it was, who's going to read this? And, you know, I think probably six people did. Uh, uh, But a couple of years later, uh, Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, uh, somebody there had read it and was fascinated by it and decided to send somebody up to do a case study about how we did our reporting. So, a uh, researcher arrived in Boston and spent probably a week talking to Marty Barron, who was our editor, Ben Bradley, uh, myself, Sasha Pfeiffer, Mike Rosendis, and Matt Carroll, and um, went off and produced uh, what I think is a 24 page case study, uh, uh, which you can also find online. It was behind Columbia's uh, firewall for a long time, but, but it's also online. It's actually pretty well done. And uh the fellow who wrote it uh, was out in California and was introduced to a couple of young producers, uh Bly Faust and Nicole Rocklin, who were basically they've a little had a little company that tries to develop ideas and then get backing for them and He told them about this story, and they get interested and uh And then they came to Boston to talk to us and to try and uh, buy buy the rights to our story, which is basically coffee money. (laughs) And uh, actually, I kid Bly Faust. I said if she wasn't buying breakfast for us at the Ritz, we never would have met with her. Because none of us thought that how we made the sausage really was interesting at all. Uh, And it took... uh, I'm giving you too long an answer. I've explained the Harvard connection, but I might as well finish the the yarn. Um, They went to Anonymous Content, which after thinking it over for a year or so, put up money to hire uh, Josh Singer, the screenwriter, and Tom McCarthy, the director, co-screenwriter. And um, they spent a lot of time in Boston. They spent literally weeks interviewing all of us and collecting, for instance, uh, I'm, I'm the least technologically savvy member of the team, uh, but I happen to have kept all the contemporaneous emails uh, from 2001, and so we turned over to them lots of documents and emails, and it was apparent to us that they really wanted to get the story right. So we were pretty comfortable, but they had no money to make the film, and they had no cast. Uh, they eventually produced the screenplay. and. Um, I guess in Hollywood there's different things that can trigger uh, an actual production. In this case, it was a case of uh, Mark Ruffalo, saw the, read the script and loved it, and called Tom McCarthy and said, I want to do this film. And he and Keaton, Michael Keaton, had talked about doing a film for a long time, so Keaton read the script and he said, I'm in. And then Rachel, Rachel McAdams got in, and as soon as the three of them were in, participant media walked in the door with $20 million to make the film. And uh, that all happened in about three weeks' time in the summer of 2014. Uh, keep in mind that Johnny Depp was paid $20 million just for his acting in uh, Black Mass. And the entire budget, for the production budget for this film was, was $20 million. And the actors <coughs> loved the film so much that they all worked for Whatever the industry minimum is, I assume that's more than Starbucks pays its baristas, but it's not what they usually command. So, so that's how the film got made, and uh, and uh, just to to put an exclamation point on it, uh, we we all thought it was pretty good film, um, but we kind of expected, well, this will spend a week in the Kendall Cinema and then go right to the video market, and so we're a little bit surprised that it's done as well as it has. Did I answer that question? (laughs) Please. Um, One of the things about the way you-
0: I'm Michaela, I'm an MPP student here. Um, I'm curious about the way that you all covered this story was really, um, seemed intentionally focused on the institution rather than the people, Um, and as you thought about this through the process, was that a conscious choice that was made, and, and was that ever- a discussion within the team of whether you should go after the people more than the institution? How did
1: that come to be? Well, you know, we did... uh, uh, I I, I suppose, you know, one of the links you can make between this film and All the President's Men is, you know, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. And uh, we we were asked, really, to do an investigation about one single priest by Marty Baron, and uh, we, we quickly Discovered. Actually, we had new Marty Baron was brand new to the Globe and uh, asked us to take this on his very first day. And uh, I, I confess that uh, our reaction was more out of fear of the new boss than any conviction that there was a story we could get here. But we, we, uh, the team, the four of us, called everybody we could think of uh, in in the first week, because we knew nothing about this subject. And uh, because we put so many feelers out, we very quickly discovered that it wasn't just one priest, that there were 12 or 15. And uh, you know, from that point, the number kept growing. As we investigated, we, we, we built our own database. I don't know if you've seen the film, but we built our own database of, uh, I think, close to 90 priests. Uh, uh, and and at some point, you know we had a meeting with Marty, uh, which is a kind of a pivotal scene in the film where he said, you know it's the practice and the policy we have to get at that, you know what the what the Cardinals knew and and how they facilitated this And, and that that scene is actually, uh, you can't say that any scene in a film based on something that happened 14 years ago uh, the, the, the dialogue is actually as, as w- what was said back then. But that scene, what comes out of Marty's mouth or Lieb Schreiber's mouth in that scene is actually right out of an email that Marty sent me in August of 2001, laying out what we had to do. Uh, so that's where the focus... We, we did focus a lot, obviously, on the ind- a lot of the individual priests, but you know the, the bigger story was always uh, the, the way that the church... Uh, enabled uh, this kind of behavior and then covered it up for so long.
0: Thank you. I'm Amy, I'm at the law school, and I'm English, as you can probably tell. Um, There's a line in the film, I think it might be your character that says it, um, it takes a village to raise a child, and it also takes one to abuse one and keep quiet about it. And I was just really struck by how many scandals there are, when everyone turns around and goes, oh yeah, I I, I thought there was something up there. Um, I'm thinking in the UK with Jimmy Savile, who was like a very famous and successful entertainer, and then after he died, it turned out everybody knew he was a child abuser, um, including the BBC. So I I just wondered, how can you kind of, sort of, how can you like prick that complacency um, and prevent stuff like this happening
1: when it just seems to happen over and over again? Yeah, Thank you. That's a very good question. Um, first of all, it was, it was a, a Stanley Tucci playing Mitchell Garabedian, uh, the, the, the plaintiff's lawyer who who uttered that line in the film. I'm not sure he ever actually said it in real life, but he could have or should have and obviously after the film you can't in, it's it's kind of inescapable, um, you know. It's uh, in in Boston, and Boston was no different than any other city. Uh, there was too much deference to to the church, and um, it's a lesson for all of us that the instita- institutions that we hold in the highest regard our most iconic institutions. Uh, particularly those that that have such presumed great moral authority, uh, we need to hold them as accountable as we do in political institutions out of whose behaviour we we don't expect to be as as uh, as acceptable. Um, I think sometimes uh, uh, faith is a big issue for all of us, and certainly it's a big issue in the film in the sense that we were all, I say all, I mean the entire community, willing to believe uh, and finding it hard to disbelieve that something like this could happen, uh, That, and, and the church played off of our faith, uh, and in some cases the blind faith that many of us had uh, growing up Catholic. in in the institution and the church very successfully over time when an individual case of a priest here and there cropped up who abused a child the church was very successful in in arguing that it was just this is a single lone aberrant case and we're no different than the episcopalians or the methodists or the boy scouts and the rate of abuse in those groups is generally thought to be of children to be uh, between one half and one percent of of caregivers, we found in Boston uh, that almost ten percent of the priests over a fifty year period abused children. Um, but your to your question of how do we prevent this from happening, um, I, I think. I mean, certainly changed our view as journalists, and and after that experience, instead of looking for the sort of typical fear of investigative reporters, official corruption, which is kind of easy to find here in Massachusetts. Um, We began to look more for stories about uh, victimized populations, people who had no power, who were voiceless, who were being run over by society, And, um, and I think those stories are far more important. For, for all of us and 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 I mean every day most of us are so preoccupied with our daily lives we walk by great injustices right in front of us and we don't often uh, stop and, and ask why I mean it's not it's not just a case of the reporters not looking in the right direction it's I think it's all of us. And that's, I think, one of the lessons in mm-hmm. this film, to me.
0: Please. Hi, I'm I'm mid-career at the, here at the Kennedy School. My question is this. What makes a story compelling to you, that you feel that you have to investigate it in order to share it the more with the public? And where there instances in which you later felt you should have pursued a story and you didn't. There is like a short thing in the film, but I'm not sure whether it's fiction or not.
1: What makes it great, I mean, as in response to the prior question, uh, and this gets to the future of investigative reporting is, it's our obligation as newspaper people or news people to hold of powerful institutions and individuals accountable, because if we don't, who will? And there's a lot less of that going on, I mean, the, 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 amount, the amount of investigative reporting that's being done now in most uh, cities is a small fraction of what it was in the year 2000. Uh, news organizations have lost so many people that in many communities, even City Hall doesn't get covered. And so the whistleblower who knows about official corruption in City Hall has no one to go to. Uh, if you're not covering a beat like that, how, do you, how can you find out what's going wrong, what the public has a right to know about? Uh, that, that's a, a really serious problem for our democracy right now, uh, that there's, there's just not very much accountability. Um, I, I know uh, a woman who's a school committeeman in the in Boston suburb who used to hate it when the reporter for the local daily covered the school committee, hated the coverage. and but. The school committee hasn't been covered hardly at all for the last four years, and uh, they're almost always open meeting law violations, and nobody notices because there's nobody nobody there. So that's kind of scary. the The film, um, in the film, I don't know if you're referring. There was one scene near the end where, where uh, Michael Keaton. says there was this story that happened in 1993 and we didn't do anything and 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 that 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 scene actually never uh, I hate to admit this never occurred in 2001 because we we were actually unable to find that clipping from 1993 so it wasn't until that story that the globe ran about the lawyer notifying the archdiocese that he had had complaints about 20 other priests actually ran inside the Metro section in December of 1993. Uh, it wasn't discovered until Josh Singer, the screenwriter, found it in 2012. And I said uh, at the time, uh, I, uh, geez, I was a Metro editor then. Actually, I'd been Metro editor about two weeks at the time, and I had no memory of it. Nor did anybody else, and uh, it's clearly the kind of story that should have provoked. It was a clue, to put it mildly. It was the kind of story that should have provoked uh, uh, some greater inquiry, and uh, it didn't. It's not the only story of its type. I could cite two or three others, but in, in virtually every other city, the same thing happened. There were clues that that uh, that, uh, that went missing. So. Because I I had fessed up to Josh Singer that I was the Metro editor, they created a scene in which, uh, in in which uh, I, I this is my compla- my only complaint about the film, I, I said to Josh I said you know I could have been on a golf vacation it was it was <laughs> December but, but anyway but but I mean in that sense Keaton is essentially playing two roles in the film he's playing me obviously but he's also. Um, Playing a generation of Globe editors, uh, many of whom were perhaps a little too deferential toward, toward the church. Okay, so we're going to open it up to questioners of any type, Your Honor. Please. Yeah. Um, hi, I'm
0: um, I'm a fellow here, and I'm from the BBC. And uh, thanks very much. Um, and the BBC has, um, you know, pretty good uh, history of doing investigative journalism but recently we've been subject to huge cuts. And what this has meant is that editors will put money into covering big events like the US election or events that they know are going to happen and take money away from investigative reporting. And the idea now is if you have an idea that you want to pursue, they tell you to go off and do it in your own time. And if it comes to something, they'll commit money by taking you off the rotor and letting you pursue it. How can we persuade editors that it's more important to cover these stories than the big set-piece
1: events? Well, the problem with editors is they spend too much time talking to publishers <laughs> uh, and not enough time listening to their audience and to their reporters. I mean, the problem is that they're looking at budgets and budgets are shrinking because revenue is shrinking. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's actually true at the BBC, given the subscription.
0: now our revenue is
1: shrinking. We can't okay. You, you know, there are many, many small newspapers now and, and uh, a, a, a fair number of which around are seated with my former students uh, and, and, and they have to do the same thing. They have to do investigative stories on their own time. Sometimes the whole story, they can't, can't get any time off because the staffs are so, so much smaller. Uh, it's, it's a little disquieting to think that this is happening. At, at at the be, but uh, I I think I read over the weekend in uh, Margaret Sullivan's public editor's column, in the Times, that the Times uh, editors decided they didn't have the resources to go in depth on the Flint, Michigan, story, which I find I mean I find that really uh, kind of frightening uh, that that the best newspaper. In 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 this country, which still has twelve hundred people in its newsroom, couldn't find a couple of reporters to go deep on that. Mm-hmm. That bothers me. The trend lines are just horrible. I mean, revenue continues to go down, and staffs uh, continue to shrink. And 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 for editors, you know, they look at this kind of long form reporting. It is expensive to do. Uh, I would argue that it's worth. Swallowing hard and finding something else to lose if you have to lose something, and 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 keep the investigator reporting above all else. Please,
0: I'll, I'll
1: get you next, yeah. i Hi,
0: Max Bazerman, co-director, Center for Public Leadership. Um, I was struck by your comment about how we all walk by things <coughs> that we don't pay attention to or act on, and. One of the things that I was struck by in the story is that I I think you cover the priests quite well. You cover the institution and the top of the hierarchy quite well. What's your view on the hundreds or thousands of people in middle management in this organization? Um, Mm -hmm. Did they simply not notice or did they notice and choose not to act?
1: The or, by organization, you mean the church?
0: Yeah, the, 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 bishops, archbishops throughout the whole system. There had to be so many people who had access to information that they could have acted on, as your team did.
1: There was a conspiracy of silence. And um, I think this is actually a part of a scene in the film, but it is true. Uh, uh, As you know, Catholic priests are required to be celibate. Uh, We could have a further discussion about what that does to the applicant pool for vocations. But uh, putting that aside for the moment, uh, there are all sorts of surveys of priests which show that half of Catholic priests are sexually active, the vast majority with other consenting adults. But the fact that a small percentage are sexually interacting with young children has been uh, a subject of some knowledge within the priesthood for decades. But because they're all violating their vow of celibacy, uh, other priests chose not to say anything very often. And when we started to do, when we got deep into our reporting, I remember that one particular priest who was a pastor of John Gagan's in one of his six assignments, uh, Sasha Pfeiffer went to interview him in his retirement home, priest's retirement home. And he, he made an offhanded comment about Gagan. He said, Well, everybody kind of knew that Jack was playing around a little too much with little kids. Well, What does that mean? It means people knew. You know, you can't transfer a priest every two or three years without some people catching on. There are a fair number of uh, parishioners who knew. I mean, I grew up Catholic and and I was an altar boy and, uh, you know, had 12 years of Catholic education. I was clueless. But I've had a lot of my friends of, of my age come up to me and say, oh, we knew about Father so-and-so, or the word was out on Father so-and-so. So um, <coughs> there were a lot of people who kind of had a little piece of the puzzle here and there. And um, I, I actually think now, because priests, once they got in a little trouble in their parish, tended to get transferred to another parish, that that would have been a lot less Possible to get away with in the internet age than it was back then. Um, so the answer to your question is: I think, certainly within the hierarchy, all the bishops and the cardinals knew, and they had a designee, usually a Monsignor or somebody of that rank, who was in charge of policing or keeping track of all of these these uh, uh, abusers, moving them around, so to speak. Thank,
0: thanks very much for being here and for your work. Uh, you, you answered in part the question I was going to ask, and I then also have an optional question, which you may want to take or not. Uh, was there anything else in the film that was Hollywood produced and, and, and not realistic? Because I know the comments have been that it's been very realistic. The optional question is: Do you know of the, either in your own career or heard about in? in Globe or other places where powerful forces has, have actually succeeded in shutting down an investigation of a spotlight-like team?
1: Uh, to your second question, <coughs> I don't know of any instance at the Globe where an investigation was was shut down. I think it's mu- that, that was much more likely to happen at smaller papers where perhaps one single advertiser might have enough clout to affect those kinds of decisions. Um, Your first question was?
0: Anything else Hollywood?
1: Well, there was no golf scene. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Look, I mean, we did a lot of work by phone, and somehow actually Tom McCarthy made made that part of it seem exciting. But they decided to do a golf scene. And look, I'm a golfer, and I said, you know, I actually think it, the golf scene may be actually more boring than a telephone scene. They, <laughs> they did it anyway. They rented a country club in Toronto for seven hours uh, to to do one scene. Uh, but so, you know, the whole I think you, the whole issue here of this is a fictionalized version, um, not to make light of it, but. Uh, my character, Michael Keaton, was clearly dressed at Brooks Brothers. <laughs> the fact is I haven't had a crease in my trousers since the Clinton administration. <laughs> so, uh, look, I, the, the dialogue, uh, the, uh, the, the film captures very accurately what we did, how we did it, but it does in two hours and eight minutes, what took us five months to do. So there's quite a lot of compression going on there. And there are, for instance, uh, composite characters. Uh, The fellow who, in that very dramatic scene at the end, circles the 70 names, is actually, I want to say, four or five different people who helped us figure figure that out, one of whom showed up at the Boston premiere, he's a friend of mine and somebody I play golf with and have for a long time, who was responsible for 30 of those names. I can't mention his name because he's a lawyer and technically he wasn't supposed to do that. But So so there are composite characters, the advisor to the cardinal who keeps showing up, played by uh, Paul Guilfoyle. Uh, uh, who's in the B.C. High scene with me and by the way Paul Gilfoyle and I are both graduates of, of B.C. High and we both actually gave commencement speeches there two years apart so that's a little weird but he's a composite of three or four characters so that's you, you know there, there's that it, it, most of our reporting was done as much as we could do it in secret in those five months it wasn't until we began to publish that Everybody knew what we were doing. So there wasn't all that much pressure on the globe during that period, but the film wants to present as accurately as they can within that time period the kinds of pressures that the newspaper and other institutions in town were under over decades and decades. Way in the back.
0: Please. Hi, my name is Cecily Tyler, and I'm a mid career um, here at the Kennedy School. Um, I was trained in New York Times um, the day after my training started, the day after Jason Blair came to light in the whole story. And I think my question to you is you know, people have lost faith in investigative reporting, people have lost an understanding of the definition of investigative reporting versus, you know, a sensationalized expose. And so when you talk to the future of investigative reporting and um, how we maintain and sustain integrity there, I'm curious how we can redefine it back to either what it once was or redefine it for what it needs to be today. And then where do we find the funding to give reporters five months of time? Um, Thank you. Thank you for being
1: here. Thank you. Uh, that's a good question. I, I actually don't like the term investigative reporting. I am one but I, uh, I mean to me there's there's really good reporting and there's reporting that's not so good and um, I, the distinction in the business really, investigative reporting is usually uh, a term used to describe reporters who do months long, long term projects. Uh, during which they are not interrupted to do daily news stories, um, that kind of reporting uh, at most papers is is no longer uh, no longer done. Uh, some papers that used to have teams still have investigative reporters, but they don't have much time to do in investigative reporting. Um, I don't think, for the most part, that readers of newspapers. Uh, Think ill of investigative reporting. I think they want more of it, uh, and, um, and 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 I actually think um, the internet, which has hollowed out uh, newspapers because it's it's basically stripped us of much of our revenue, uh, has made it possible for. Even daily beat reporters writing for the next day's paper have access to so much information. If they have the skills to find it, uh, they can do so much in the daily story now that wasn't possible 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, It's so much easier to do uh, now than than once was the case. Let me give you one example. In 2006, Tom Riley, who was the uh, favorite candidate uh, for governor, he was the attorney general, he was a a favorite in the Democratic primary uh, to be governor, uh, picked a a legislator, Marie St. Fleur, to be his running mate. And uh, I came into work early that morning, and because I'm a snoop, and I I just kind of went to the real estate database which is all online now and in 30 minutes time I discovered that she hadn't paid her property taxes the prior year and that she had an IRS tax lien on her for $14,000. And by the end of the day the Riley Campaign unwisely put her on the phone with me and of course to that umbrella question you always ask what haven't you told me? That I should know. She also admitted she had forty thousand dollars in unpaid student debt, and by the next day she was gone from the ticket. As his lieutenant governor, that real estate database work—if you had done it in the mid-nineties, would have—if you had the inclination to do it and if you knew how to do it, most reporters didn't—would take you probably a week, and you can now do it. It literally took thirty minutes to, to track that down. So there's a lot. There's a lot that reporters can do now to make a, a story that once took two months, you can do in a week. So uh, so that's a good thing. Yeah.
0: Hi, um, thank you for your talk. My name is Meera Srinivasan. I'm a journalist from India and currently the Elizabeth Newford Fellow. Uh, what I really am interested to know from you is we've had wikileaks since your big investigation and then there's been snowden how have these whistleblowing um, episodes sort of impacted investigative reporting after that
1: uh, I'm, I'm not sure i understood the question how much have incidents like what edward snowden
0: and wikileaks how have those uh, okay, uh, okay. Right. yeah uh,
1: well i uh, that that's a very good question uh, It it kind of adds another uh, dimension to uh, to the quandary we sometimes face in deciding, obviously, what what the public has a right to know versus what the public has has a need to know. And uh, uh, my 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 uh, friend Josh Singer, who wrote the uh, screenplay for the film about. Uh, Julian Assange called it the fifth that film is called the fifth estate we're the fourth we're the fourth estate but, but we, we now have these uh, uh, organizations like uh, WikiLeaks which put out a lot of information and we end up being and, and Snowden is another case obviously of someone who had a vast treasure trove of, of uh NSA protected information. So uh, reporters end up becoming the cur- more curators uh, than investigative reporters, and, and have to make decisions about how much of this to put in general interest publications, and those are tough decisions. Uh, you know, I think the people who put that information out sometimes think, I mean, and certainly Assange. Uh, was convinced that the New York Times was essentially doing the U.S. government's bidding because the Times wouldn't put as much of the uh, WikiLeaks uh, stuff out as Assange thought they should have. Yes, sir. sir uh, how did Cardinal Law evade his responsibility
0: and end up with a major position at the Vatican? Surely thereafter.
1: I I think. Uh, as a as a legal matter, the attorney general uh, at the time, who had a grand jury and who asked the cardinal and his bishops to come and testify, and they refused to do so, so he had to subpoena them. And uh, the attorney general could find no crime within the statute of limitations, and the obvious crime for the cardinal and and his lieutenants who dealt with this. Would be obstruction of justice, and decided that there was no crime within the statute. There were many of us who thought that Bishop McCormick, who handled that, the abuse of priests under him, uh, should have been indicted. Um, The cardinal uh, was not. One thing I would note: the the church was so powerful in everywhere, but more, perhaps more especially in Massachusetts that in 2002, uh, Massachusetts was one of the very few states that did not require clergymen to be mandated reporters under the laws, as many of you know, social workers, doctors, nurses, teachers, etc. if they suspect a child has been abused and neglected are required by law to report it to authorities, and if they do not, they are subject to criminal penalties. In Massachusetts, every year until 2002, that legislation was proposed, was backed by the Protestant ministers and the Jewish rabbis, and it was always killed in the legislature because the church, the Catholic church, opposed it. And now we know why. And so, very quickly in 2002, that legislation finally passed. If that had been law, then they could have prosecuted law. Now. He didn't get a promotion. He got one of the four major churches in Rome, a 10,000 euro a month allowance, and a cook. And uh, he gave that up a few years ago, and he's living in a two room apartment in the Vatican, and he's not well. Uh, and uh, I think of him sometimes a little bit like Richard Nixon. He was someone at the pinnacle of his power. And he abused that power uh, in extraordinary ways. And like Nixon, he went off to a comfortable retirement, but really lost everything that was important to him. But but the short answer is uh, in many parts of the country, prosecutors could have indicted bishops and decided not to for political reasons. Marilyn, please.
0: Hi, um, I'm Marilyn Thompson, uh, a Shorenstein Fellow.
1: Um, I'm wondering if you could comment on the quality of investigative work uh, surrounding the 2016 presidential field. What what <laughs> investigative reporting would that be? <laughs> <laughs> Is that your that's your assessment? You know, I, I, I don't. <laughs> I mean, I'm following this closely. I mean, I think the role of the press in this campaign so far has been mostly to um, uh, provide a bullhorn for people who will say the most outrageous things, and then uh, the the press, including major news organizations, have devoted far too many of their resources writing about those outrageous things and uh, not doing enough... Uh, not doing enough to really dig deep uh, uh, now, but that criticism is made every four years, and and the counter to it is, first of all, as we get further down the road and and some of these people fall by the wayside, more of that, the kind of reporting we need to have done will get done, and um, many people will get to November and say that the press never really looked at these candidates' records, and those people will be wrong because if they went and looked in the right places, they will find lots of coverage. Uh, Maybe not enough investigative coverage, but certainly enough for people to make informed decisions. Thanks. So, I'm Savannah Tyler-Choley, I'm from Boston University. Um, I'm just wondering uh, if could you wait for that sure
0: thank
1: you um, I'm just
0: wondering do you think um, that the film spotlight will give investigative reporting outlets like ProPublica or the Marshall Project a better chance at survival um, even in this time of social media and fast turning news
1: you know you know I don't worry about ProPublica or the Marshall project I, I think they'll get funding um, I think uh, national investigative reporting is actually in relatively good shape. Uh, The biggest shortfall is in local investigative reporting. I mean, after all, what we did was local investigative reporting. It just happened to be something that was going on everywhere. Um, Same could be said about Obviously, uh, what Woodward and Bernstein did in 1972, they were a couple of uh, metro reporters at the Post covering cops. Uh, so that's where, that's where the deficit is, and that's where it, it matters, I think, the most, because most of the government we get is at the state and local level, and that's where uh, the, 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 the real deficit in, in coverage General coverage and investigative coverage has has occurred. Thank you. Yeah, back right there, please. Oops.
0: Okay. Thanks. Hi, I'm Dominique Gilbert. I'm a student here. Um, it sounds like your team um, was understandably looked to to provide the answers about you know why this happened and what the solutions are. And I'm wondering like, what you see as as the current state and also maybe untapped opportunities for collaboration between disciplines. Um, like if you think that by expending energy and trying to provide like an ethical analysis and interpretations that that detracts from the role of exposing facts or, and then I guess, yeah, what you see as opportunities for collaboration.
1: What do you mean? Can you give me an example of what you mean by?
0: Sure, sure, sure. So, um, like. In this case, if people are looking for like the journalist to provide the analysis of, of the ethics, of, like the social science or behavioral history or, or solutions, or if you know there should be like we defer to the you know social science experts and who don't always have the audience, the large public that journalists do.
1: Well, very often in investigative reporting that we do, do we we do turn to social scientists for for assistance. For help in understanding, uh, you know, patterns of of, of unacceptable behavior that we find in in society. I don't know if that's what what you meant by by, by the question.
0: Yeah, like the current state, and if you think there are untapped opportunities. So, if you think the current state is
1: sufficient. Well, you know that that raises an interesting point. There are. There are an awful lot of people who do research in different areas who uh, do not work for newspapers but who know things that, if brought to the attention of news organizations, which if they had the resources, and I'm not saying that that's that's the case often enough, obviously. Uh, But there's a lot more we could could do. i tell you, a friend, uh, a friend of mine who's a, a probate lawyer uh, had been tugging at my sleeve for a long time, and I've, I've written a fair amount about the Massachusetts probate court and some abuses in it. But uh, uh, a couple of months ago, he uh, took me into Suffolk Probate Court, and I sat through a, a day of sessions there. And I feel, in a sense, complicit in a cover-up. For not having yet done anything about it. Because what goes on in that those courts every day, I'm not saying it's necessarily the court's fault, but it's where uh, mm-hmm. society's most intractable problems usually end up. Uh, and uh, it's, it's something the Commonwealth is not a, equipped to deal with, and Massachusetts is not the only state with this problem. and And that's the kind of you know, more people need to tug at our sleeves and, and call our attention to these problems that we otherwise wouldn't—the You know, the, the, the dirty secret in journalism has always been, you know, your, your friends outside think that you know what's going on, and the fact of the matter is we only know what people tell us, and we don't, we don't ask enough, most of us. So we have time for one quick question and answer. Hi, uh, Tim Yeoman's
0: class of 2013 here at the Kennedy School. I had two kids that went to Chevers after Father Talbot, And uh, I just wonder if the story would have been possible without the
1: tremendous loyalty that exists between classmates that go to Jesuit high schools. What do you mean by that? That I learned from my kids that there's just the, the B.C. High,
0: Shevers, the, the the alumni, the students, Have a tremendous loyalty and bond between them. You appeared very conflicted in the movie, at least your character, and using that network to uncover this story. Would the story have been possible without the BC High
1: alumni student network that you were a part of? Yeah, I can't say that the alumni student network helped me. I mean, I'm very active as an alum at BC High, and I think the most painful interview I had to do is the one that's depicted in. The screen, and you know, go across the street to my alma mater. My friends say I haven't come far in life, uh, <laughs> but I uh, and, and talk to the president and ask him how much did the Jesuits know about what went on with this priest. In, in point of fact, in, in terms of Cheveris, and Talbot was the priest at BC High who ended up going to prison, thank God, uh, but who got transferred to Maine in 1980. Uh, where he abused many more children, and by the way, when he was up for parole in Massachusetts uh, three or four years ago at a parole hearing, he was asked how many teenage boys over the years he had sexually molested, and he said somewhere between 95 and 100. Uh, but he went to Cheveris and he abused uh, children there, but, but the one who came to our attention was a boy whose family welcomed Father Talbot in, and when, when the abuse became known and the family pressed the case, the family was ostracized by other families, and he was ostracized by his fellow graduates for raising this issue, uh, which I think was in 1999. So I, I can't say that the Alumni Association worked to the best advantage of uncovering this. Walter Robinson, thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Shorenstein Center Media and Politics Podcast. Music provided by extrememusic.com.